Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host Liv and I'm very excited to have you here and I do hope that you enjoy today's case. So how are we all? How are we all feeling? How's our week going? I know it's only Tuesday but (laughs) for me it is just dragged so far. Absolutely dragged. Um, Especially with the weather. Even though I do love autumn and winter, I do. You know, spooky season, I love it. But I do have a big girl job, surprise, surprise, and yeah, it is getting a little bit stressful, but I'm very happy to be sat here recording for you guys, and honestly, I have some really interesting cases coming up, especially for Halloween. I'm currently writing, I think, I've got at least two bonus episodes this Halloween, and one of them is actually going to be, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, with an interview um, with somebody who knew the killer, but I'm not going to tell you which case it is, you're going to have to wait and find out, but that is definitely something to look forward to. But um, today's case, I am going to be talking about a absolutely devastating event that took place in Port Arthur in 1996. Martin Bryant was responsible for 35 deaths and 25 injured people when he opened fire. This case is, it is about a mass shooting and it's known today as one of the world's deadliest shooting sprees that there has been. I mean, obviously you will probably have heard of Dunblane and Columbine, which are equally just as traumatic and devastating Um But this case, I kind of knew a little bit about it, but I didn't know as much as what I've managed to research, I will admit. Um, But before we get into the case, I do just want to state that everything I talk about is information I have found online, and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's episode does involve mention of animal cruelty, different mental disorders, and suicide. So if this is something that you aren't comfortable listening to, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is the tragic Port Arthur Massacre. Martin Bryant was born on the 7th of May 1967 at the Queen Alexandra Hospital in Hobart, Tasmania and he was the first son of his parents, Maurice and Carlene and although the family home was in Lena Valley, Bryant spent most of his childhood at their beach home in Carnarvon Bay but his parents didn't get the cute, innocent little child that they hoped that they would In a 2011 interview, his mother recalled that whilst Bryant was very young, she would often find his toys broken and that he was, quote, annoying and different. Psychologist's view was that Bryant would never be capable of holding down a job as he would aggravate people so much to an extent that he would always be in trouble. Locals recall abnormal behaviour of him as well, such as pulling the snorkel from another boy whilst diving and cutting down trees on a neighbour's property. He was described by teachers as being distant from reality and unemotional, which I suppose isn't always 
it isn't always a sign of a troubled child, you know, some, some kids are just like that, but he was, you know, so destructive and sometimes violent, you know, children suffered severe bullying. He was actually suspended from Newtown Primary School in 1977 after psychological assessments noted that he tortured animals, which, yeah, big, big red flag. He returned to school the following year with improved behaviour, however, he persisted in teasing younger children until he was finally transferred to a special education unit at Newtown High School in 1980, where he unfortunately deteriorated both academically and in his behaviour as well throughout his remaining school years. Descriptions of Bryant's behaviour as an adolescent show that he did in fact continue to be disturbed and it outlined the possibility that maybe he had a intellectual disability. So when he was leaving school in 1983, he was actually assessed for a disability pension by a psychiatrist who wrote, quote, cannot read or write, does a bit of gardening and watches TV. Only his parents' efforts prevent further deterioration. He could be schizophrenic and parents face a bleak future with him, end quote. Now, he did in fact receive a dis- disability pension, but he did also work as a handyman and a gardener. In an examination after the massacre, um, actually, forensic psychiatrist Ian Joblin found Bryant to be borderline mentally disabled with an IQ of 66, which is about equivalent to an 11 year old. So when Bryant turned 19 in early 1987, he came across 54 year old Helen Mary Elizabeth Harvey, who was actually an heiress to a share of a lottery fortune. So she had a lot of money. And he actually came across Harvey when he was looking for a new customer for his lawn mowing service. Now, Harvey lived with her mother, Hilza, and quickly befriended Bryant, who became a regular visitor at her neglected mansion in Newtown. And, you know, he helped her out with day-to-day tasks like feeding her 14 dogs and 40 cats. Um, That's a lot of animals. Um... In June 1990, though, an anonymous person reported Harvey to the health authorities and medics arrived and found both Harvey and her mother in need of urgent hospital treatment. Harvey was actually suffering with some infected ulcers and Hilza was found with a broken hip. So Hilza was obviously immediately pulled out of this mansion and straight into a nursing home where they tried to help her but sadly just weeks later at the age of 79 she sadly passed away. So after the authorities had become aware of the living situation in the mansion a clean-up order was placed to try and sort it out a bit you know get the place cleaned up spruced up back into living conditions and I mean I'm not one to judge I'm really not but with all with how many animals she had and the fact that they were both struggling you know medically I can't imagine the place would be you know exactly hygienic like obviously I don't know the situation 
well I do a little bit but you know I, I think the local RSPCA unit had to take a lot of the animals that were living inside the house and I guess it was probably for the best you know and after the cleanup was complete though um Harvey actually invited Brian to come and live with her in this huge nice big mansion that was now all clean and they both began to spend a huge huge amount of money I mean they actually purchased more than 30 new cars in less than three years I mean that's a lot of cars I mean I've had the same car for a a long time now (laughs) I couldn't even imagine getting rid of it never mind having 30 new ones (laughs) So I guess this odd, if you want to say, this unlikely pair of friends began to spend most of their days shopping, um, usually after having lunch in a nice local restaurant. You know what? Like, I would love that. I would love to just go shopping every day. But to be honest, I'm more of a H&M home. Like, I would, like, B&M, Dunelm, Ikea, like, my perfect day out there. I would love it. So anyway, around this time, Bryant was actually reassessed for his pension and a note was attached to the paperwork that said, quote, Father protects him from any occasion which might upset him as he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control, end quote. Now, I mean, that's a little bit... Like, if I saw that, I'd, I'd be very concerned. So, it, I mean, it just says it right there, doesn't it, really? I mean, let's have it right. In 1991, as a result of no longer being allowed to have animals at that house, Harvey and Bryant moved together into a 72-acre farm um, called Torresville. And she'd purchased that in Coping, which is like a small township, But neighbours recalled that Bryant always carried an air gun and often fired it at tourists as they stopped to buy apples at a stall on a highway and that like like, late at night he would just like roam through the surrounding properties and just started firing his gun at dogs when they barked at him. You know, they avoided him at all costs, you know, despite his attempts to befriend them. But I mean, like everybody has that sort of crazy neighbour, you know, like a bit of a weird neighbour, but like that is a little bit of another level like (laughs) that is another level you know carrying a gun around and firing at dogs that bark I mean yeah dogs bark so what like yeah it could be annoying but you'd never catch well me or anybody that I know shooting at dogs that is just awful so Bryant and Harvey were loving life on this farm um, you know, just living their life in this nice big, big house on this big property, um, despite the neighbours not necessarily liking them. However, on the 20th of October 1992, Harvey was very, very sadly killed when her car veered onto the wrong side of the road and hit an oncoming car directly. And Bryant was also inside the vehicle at the time of the accident and he was also hospitalised for seven months with severe neck and back injuries. He was actually briefly investigated by the police for the role that he played in the accident, you know, as Bryant had a known habit of, you know, lunging for the steering wheel, apparently. 
and Harvey had already had three accidents as a result of this. I mean, oh my God, how did nobody stop this? You know, she often told people that this was the reason she never drove faster than 37 miles per hour. I mean, that is just crazy. I mean, 37 miles an hour, like, yeah, it's fast, but if you think about it, it's not that fast. And if he was known to be doing this, then surely he must have had something to do with that. Even, you know, if he's found guilty or not, I mean, that is a little bit... It's not far-fetched at all, really. And just to top all of this off, Bryant was named the sole beneficiary of Harvey's will. I mean, there's little surprise there. And he actually came into possession of assets totalling more than 550,000 Australian dollars. But I mean, as Bryant had only the vaguest notions of financial matters, his mother ended, um, ended up applying for and was granted a guardianship order, which basically placed Bryant's assets under the management of public trustees. And the order was based on evidence of Bryant's diminished intellectual capacity. So after Harvey's death, Bryant's father, Maurice, um, looked after the farm and Bryant ended up returning to his family home just, um, you know, after he left the hospital, after he was okay. Now it's known that Maurice had been prescribed antidepressants and had discreetly transferred his joint bank account and utilities into his wife's name. Now two months later on August 14th 1993 a visitor looking for Maurice at the farm found a note saying quote call the police end quote pinned to the door and found several thousand dollars in his car. The rates officer at the time found no reason to suspect criminal intent and sent council members and police to smooth out stresses put forward by letters sent to the local council chambers. And police searched the property for Maurice, but, you know, they couldn't find him. Nobody knew where Maurice was until divers were eventually called in to search the four dams on the property. And on August 16th, his body was found in the dam that was closest to the farmhouse. And his body was actually found with a diving weight belt around his neck. You know, the things that divers put around them to kind of help them sink, you know, to go diving. Um, So one was found around his neck, which obviously is not natural at all. And in fact, the police did describe his death as unnatural and it was ultimately ruled a suicide. So with his father's death, Bryant inherited the proceeds of his father's um, superannuation, I think that's how you say it, and this was valued at about 250,000 Australian dollars, and Bryant later sold the farm for a further 143,000 and decided to keep the new town mansion. So I think it's safe to say that he has racked up quite a lot of money from these two deaths and the white overalls that he usually wore were now replaced with clothing more in line with his financial status. But now that he was alone, you know, Bryant's dress became just 
bizarre. I mean, whatever floats your boat. But, you know, he often wore like grey linen suits, a cravat, lizard skin shoes and a Panama hat, you know, whilst carrying like a briefcase during the day. And he would tell anybody who listens that he had a well-paying career, even though we know that's not the case. He often wore a electric blue suit with flared trousers and a ruffled shirt to restaurants that he would frequently go to. The restaurant owner actually recalled, quote, It was horrible. Everybody was laughing at him, even the customers. I really felt suddenly quite sorry for him. I realised this guy didn't really have any friends, end quote. So with both his dad and his friend Harvey dead, he just became lonely, which I think anybody would, but you know... And from 1993 to late 1995, he visited different like overseas countries. Like he went traveling, I think about 14 times. And a summary of his domestic airline travel, you know, it filled three pages. Like he went a lot, but he actually hated the places that he went to because he found that people just avoided him there as well. You know, like they did back home, like nobody really wanted to talk to him. But he did enjoy flying because, I mean, he could speak to the people sitting next to him who really had no choice but to be polite. And he later took, like, great joy in describing some of the more successful conversations that he had with his fellow passengers. In late 1995, Bryant had become suicidal after deciding that he just had enough. He stated, quote, I just felt more people were against me. When I tried to be friendly towards them, they just walked away, end quote. Which, I guess is kind of sad for anybody. I mean, obviously, after we know what's happened with him, maybe not so. But I wouldn't want anybody to feel that way. Like, I will try and be as friendly as I can towards people with, you know, to a degree. Um... But his drinking, his drinking is, it's not good. So although, you know, he'd previously been little more than a social drinker, his alcohol consumption just increased. And I mean, although he'd not consumed any alcohol on the day of the massacre, actually, it had especially escalated in the six months prior to that day. You know, his average daily consumption was estimated, you know, at half a bottle of Zambuca and a bottle of... Bailey's Irish cream and you know wine and sweet alcoholic drinks like he was drinking a lot Um, and according to Brian he thought the plan for Port Arthur might have first occurred to him about four to twelve weeks before the event. Now Brian has provided conflicting and confused accounts of what led him to kill these 35 people. Um, I mean it could have been his desire for attention you know, he allegedly told his next door neighbour that he said, quote, I'll do something that will make everybody remember me, end quote. But Brian's defence psychiatrist, Paul Mullen, um, who was actually the former chief of forensic psychiatry at Monza University, um, he said, quote, he followed Dunblane. His planning started with Dunblane. Before that, he was thinking about suicide, but Dunblane and the early portrayal of the killer, Thomas Hamilton, changed everything, end quote. So, I've talked a lot about, 
kind of what led up to this, you know, his background, what's led up. But I think now I'm going to speak more about the actual event itself and the poor victims that died at the hands of this man. So Bryant's first victims were David and Nolene, or Sally, Martin, and they owned the bed and breakfast guest house called The Seascape. And the Martins had bought the bed and breakfast that Bryant's father had actually wanted to buy. And Bryant's father had complained to him on numerous occasions of the damage done to the Bryant's family because of that purchase. And Bryant had apparently believed that the Martins had bought the property to hurt his family out of spite and also blamed the Martins for the depression that led to his father's suicide. So he went in and fatally shot the Martins in the guest house before travelling to the Port Arthur site. When he reached Port Arthur, he entered the Broad Arrow Cafe and he was seen carrying like a large blue duffel bag. But anyway, he went into the cafe, sat down and ordered. Not quite sure what he ordered, but he ate. You know, he finished up his food. And then he moved towards the back of the cafe and set down a video camera on a vacant table. He then took out his semi-automatic rifle and firing from the hip, he just began shooting. He shot at staff, he shot at customers, and within 15 seconds, he had fired 17 shots, and that killed 12 people and wounded 10. He then walked to the other side of the shop and fired 12 more times, and this killed another eight people and wounded another two. He then took his time changing his magazine before fleeing the scene, but he was still shooting at people in the car park and from his yellow Volvo car, um, he drove away and he, he killed four more people and wounded an additional six in that car park. He just didn't stop, like it started in the cafe, he shot and he, he could have stopped, you know, he, he had the time to think, oh my god and stop but no he he killed all those people in the cafe and carried on as he was in the car park he then drove 300 meters down the road to where a woman and her two children were walking he stopped his car and fired two shots which tragically killed the woman and the child that she was carrying the older child fled but Bryant followed her and killed her with a single shot. He then stole a gold BMW by killing all four of its occupants. Oh, God. A short distance down the road, he stopped beside a couple in a white Toyota and drew his weapon and ordered the male occupant into the boot of the BMW. And after shutting the boot, he fired two shots into the windscreen of the Toyota that killed the female driver. Bryant then decided to return to the guest house and set the stolen car alight and took his hostage inside where he had left the Martins' bodies. The police soon arrived and they tried to negotiate with him for many hours before the battery um, in the phone he was using had run out, which ultimately ended all communication. Brian's 
only demand was to be transported in an army helicopter to an airport. And sadly, during the negotiation, um, Brian killed his hostage. The next morning, 18 hours later, he also set fire to the guest house and attempted to escape in the confusion. He suffered several burns to his back and his backside and he was captured and taken to Royal Hobart Hospital where he was treated and kept heavy guarded like obviously lots of guards were surrounding him to make sure nothing else happened. He was judged to be competent to stand trial which was scheduled to begin on 7th of November 1996. He initially pleaded not guilty but was persuaded by his court-appointed lawyer, John Avery, to plead guilty to all these charges. Like, there's no way that he could get away with this. And I think this was apparent to everybody, because just two weeks later, the Supreme Court judge, William Cox, gave Brian 35 life sentences, plus 1,652 years in prison without the possibility of parole. This life sentence being applied is, you know, he's going to die in prison. He is never, ever getting out for everything that he has done to these poor people and these people's families. So for the first eight months of him being in prison, he was held in a purpose-built, like, special suicide prevention cell. And this was almost in complete, you know, like, solitary confinement, you know, all on his own. And he remained in protective custody for his own safety until 13th of November 2006, where he was then moved into Hobart's Wilfred Lopez Centre, which is like a secure mental health unit that's run by the Tasmanian Department of Health and Human Services. The 35-bed unit for inmates with serious mental illnesses is staffed with doctors, nurses and other support workers and inmates are not locked down and can come and go from their cells. Exterior security at the facility though is provided by a three-wall perimeter patrolled by private contract guards. So on the 25th of March 2007, Bryant actually attempted to end his own life by cutting his wrists with a razor blade and um, just two days later he cut his throat with another razor blade and was hospitalised briefly. Now I'm not really sure how he got a razor blade, like I'm not entirely sure, like I see, I've watched a few documentaries and I see like some of these facilities or likewise facilities like have shops and stuff but surely they wouldn't be selling razors. So I'm not quite sure what happened. Um, But anyway, yeah, he was hospitalised for this. And as of January 2022, so from January this year, he is housed in the maximum security Risdon prison near Hobart. Newspaper coverage immediately after the Port Arthur massacre raised serious questions about journalistic practices and criticism was directed towards Australian media. Photographs of Bryant published in the Australian had his eyes digitally manipulated with the effect of making him appear deranged and like glaring almost. 
but despite criticism, the manipulated photographs continued to be used in media reporting a decade later. But there was also a question as to how the photographs had been obtained. The Tasmanian Director of Public Prosecutions warned the media that the coverage compromised his right to a fair trial and um, it was issued against this it was issued against this newspaper and also uh, Mercury, which used Bryant's picture under the headline, quote, This is the man, end quote. And, you know, there was a fair fair other, you know, other newspapers that were reporting on this. The chairman of the Australian Press Council at the time, David Flint, argued that because Australian newspapers regularly ignored contempt of court provisions, this showed that the law, not the newspapers, needed to change. Flint suggested that such a change in law would not necessarily lead to a trial-by-media sort of thing. Australian newspapers also came under critical scrutiny of their accounts of Bryant and how the kind of identity responsible for his and other similar kinds of killings may be understood. As a response to the killing spree, Australian state and territory governments placed extensive restrictions on all firearms, including semi-automatic centre-fire rifles, repeating shotguns that hold more than five shots, and high-capacity rifle magazines. In addition to this, limitations were also put into place on low-capacity repeating shotguns and rim-fire semi-automatic rifles. And although this stirred, you know, a bit of controversy, opposition to the new laws was overcome by media reporting of the massacre and mounting public opinion in the wake of the shootings. And with all this being said, I can honestly say that my heart goes out to all the victims and the families who were affected by this tragic event. I mean, this is something that nobody should ever have to suffer through, but the sad reality is that it it does happen. And to even just think that is crazy. You know, nobody, nobody should have to fear walking the streets or even going to school, which is meant to be a safe place for these children. It's not a reality or it's not a world that we should have to be living in. But even though this event caused so much suffering... There was a light that was brought to this case. The Alana and Madeline Foundation is a national Australian charity which was launched on the 30th of April 1997 and this charity was actually launched by the father of two of the children victims in this case, Alana and Madeline, and this foundation's mission is to keep children safe from violence. The foundation cares for children who have experienced or witnessed violence and they run programs which aim to prevent violence in these children's lives. It also plays a role by being a voice against childhood violence and I'm going to link um, the page in the show notes. You know, there's so many different ways that you can help and get involved, whether it's donating and fundraising or even volunteering your time to them. So I do urge you to go and take a look at their page and if there is any way that you can help then I think it would be greatly appreciated by everybody involved with that foundation. 
But that does conclude today's episode. So thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoyed. And I do hope to have you back for another Primed for Crime episode. But in the meantime, if you are still craving for more true crime cases, then you can head over to my Primed for Crime TikTok where I post small snippets of cases daily. And it's nice to interact with you guys, see what cases you're liking, what you're not liking. Um, You know, if anybody's got any cases that they want me to cover, then I am happily open to suggestions. Um, But for the time being, please be vigilant and stay safe. And I will see everybody in the next episode. See you later.